Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today I'll be speaking with author Chris Matheson. Today I'll be speaking with Chris Matheson. Chris is a screenwriter whose credits include Rapture Palooza and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He's also the author of the book, The Story of God, which satirizes the Bible and the Abrahamic God. He's also the author of The Trouble with God, which goes into the Quran and other holy books. This conversation is also a little more explicit than usual. And near the end, there's just a music transition where the call cut out for a second, just so you know. All right, I had a great time talking to Chris, so let's get to our conversation. The Bible was not written by the same person or people who had a master plan for the narrative arc or the structure of the book. The Bible is a collection of many different works written by dozens of authors who lived in different places at different times, who had disparate conceptions of God and entirely different points they were trying to make. Christians don't want us to believe this is the case. They want us to believe that God is only one character and that the Bible has a clear message. Writer Chris Matheson has done the hard work of taking them seriously and trying to imagine what God would have to be like in order for him to actually be the same person from Genesis to Revelation. Chris, welcome to the show, and why did you intentionally inflict the Bible on yourself? That seems like a bad move. (laughs) Um, Good question. I think it's funny. I I actually really legit enjoy it. I I get a kick out of it. I think it's, um, he's a tremendously funny character to me. And, um, it's a really fun, lively book looked at a certain way. Yeah. It has really dull passages. It does in fact have some beautiful things in it, but mainly this guy at the center of it is so utterly peculiar and, um, horrible that he's, he, I found him very delightful to spend time with actually as a character. Well, how did you get here though? Like in your own religious upbringing or your, like what has religion been in your life and how did you get to this place? I think it's kind of an unusual journey because I didn't grow up with any organized religion at all. I literally never set foot in, in a church until I was 28 years old. I mean, ever of any kind. I I never, ever went to a church uh, or a temple or a mosque or anything else. Nothing. No, no uh, uh, formal religion in in my family at all. So I don't have a bone to pick or I don't have a personal beef against religion because of what it did to me. You know, I wasn't Catholic and, and molested by my priest or something. It's it's not really, (laughs) yeah, it's, so it's not that on the other hand, um, there was a tremendous uh, kind of, uh, certainty and even dogmatism in my family about how things were. Uh, my dad in particular was, was, um, very new agey Mm -hmm. and he really, really 100% believed all of his new age stuff. So I never went to church, but I was very much immersed in, a uh, a kind of a, a spiritual, uh, world that was rooted in, in really dumb things like, uh, astrology and, you know, channeling and, stuff like that. So there was a ton of that. And I think I probably ended up, well, not probably, I definitely ended up rejecting all of that stuff. And then uh, for whatever reason, I I just don't like the idea of absolute authority. I don't like the idea of people saying, here's, here's the truth. Here it is. Let me tell you, or let us tell you, what the truth of reality is. Here's the story. And by the way, if you don't agree, you're going to burn forever. I I don't like that. That that really bothers me. And I think that they deserved um, mockery. And I'm a comedy writer and that's what I do. So it seemed worth doing. You know, I was just going to ask you because you've already said that God is funny 
and that New Age beliefs are stupid. And, you know, I can hear people already just, you know, isn't this sacred? Shouldn't you not make fun of people's beliefs? And you've already answered that question. It's just those, <laughs> those kinds of people, you know, they make their buttons so easy to push. And people like you who are comedy writers, it's just like, how do you expect them when you're standing there and saying, look, take, you can't make fun of this. Like, yeah, obviously right. you're just inviting people like you to make fun of it. You totally are. In fact, all you're really doing when you say to somebody, don't you dare uh, punch me here. Do you do not punch me here? You can't. It's like, OK, well, I guess I'll punch you there. You know, <laughs> thanks for telling me exactly where you're weak. Um, that does that move does not work like you can't you can't make fun of my belief system. That's out of bounds. Like, well, according to who? If we can all just go around and say, yeah, I can't be criticized. You, you may not criticize me on these levels. Um, like, who says? Right. I don't it's accept, a total I don't accept that. Of... I mean, basically, like, fuck you. I'll <laughs> criticize you however the fuck I want. And if you want to criticize me back, by the way, go right ahead. I mean, I've, I, go ahead. I don't care. Exactly. Because it's like you said, it's total weakness. It doesn't come from a place of strength. And they're like, it doesn't, it does not come from a piece a place of strength. It comes from a place of, of, uh, dominance and a desire to control. And, and they, they are strong human, particularly male desires, I think, to want to control the narrative, to want to try to control other people, to want to make life go the way you want it to go. But is that ultimately a strong position in human life? No, I don't believe it is. I think it's weak. Yeah, and the, the tone of all the holy books, not just the Bible, is exactly that kind of self-serious. It, it's really comical, but they, they think, and it works on, I suppose it works on, like, obedient people. Like, I don't want <laughs> to harp on, like, the stupidity of religious people too much, but it's like a lot of it, I'd say it's equal parts stupidity and obedience. And it's like when you have that kind of like self-serious tone, you can't make fun of me. You have to revere what I'm saying. Don't make fun of my beliefs. Oh, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. The pomposity of it, the gassiness of it, especially when you read these books carefully and underneath all of their kind of cloaks of grandiosity and magnificence, <clears throat> the ideas are really pretty basic and pretty commonplace and uh, and oftentimes really banal and uh, oftentimes really ugly and mean-spirited. So before we get to the stories and the character of God, do you want to speak to the Bible as just a work of literature? Like, you're a professional writer. I mean, just if you were looking at the Bible and you, you didn't know it, you were supposed to think it was a great book, like, yeah. you, you know, like you said, it's not all bad, but I mean— you know, what is the Bible um, like as a work of literature? I think, I mean, of course, it's very much a mixed bag. And there are writers. In, I, I don't know how many writers there are in the Old Testament. We know how many there are in the New Testament. There's, what, five, six, basically. And, that, and they're a mixed bag, actually, because I would say that um, <clears throat> Matthew and Mark are simpler and uh, more straightforward storytellers than Luke and, and John in particular is just dreadful. He's absolutely horrible. He's insufferable. He's just mm -hmm. the most loathsome little voice. You just want to hit him. He's so awful. And, and Paul is, I mean, if there's a villain in the story, one of, or there's a bunch, but one of them is Paul, who is just a grotesque as far as I'm concerned, because he takes, Jesus and he and he pretty quickly transforms him and transforms the story into this insane story of the suicide mission that that Jesus was on. Um, so, but in the Old Testament, you've got oh I don't know how many writers, dozens probably. <clears throat> it's very much a mixed bag. Some of them are horrible, cannot write at all. It's just you're reading the worst prose of all time, but. There's some good writers in there. Solomon can write. Solomon's a good writer. Job is a beautiful piece of literature. I mean, it's great comedy, and I actually think it's it's uh, satire, um, which is um, the most amazing piece of satire ever written. It's also a beautiful piece of literature. Ecclesiastes is beautiful. 
some parts of Genesis are, are really beautifully written. Um, Satan's always a, a great, great enigmatic character when he shows up. I would say roughly 10 to 20% is really interesting and valid and good and beautiful. And 80 to 85% is either not very good or kind of terrible. Yeah, we are 100% getting to the book of Job. But just to go back, there there is no cohesive message or arc in the Bible. God is not even one character. And just so we don't lose anyone, what is the premise of your books now? I tried to stitch him together into one character so that this guy whose behavior is all over the map and can seem kind of incoherent, like what on earth is he doing? Uh, I tried to piece it together and say, well, who is this guy? I mean, if, if I'm going to kind of go with the idea that every single thing in the Bible is true, it's all true. It's all literally true. If that's the case, who does this guy have to be? Um, so that's the premise of the book. So I'm asking, in your opinion, is there just any hope for actually interpreting the Bible the way Christians want us to interpret it? Like, can the story they want to tell be salvaged or rationally defended based on the text at all, in your view? No. <laughs> <laughs> the closest you would get, in my opinion, if you want a glimpse of what was possible, you would read two things I think are illuminating. I think Ecclesiastes is very illuminating because it gives you a, a sense of maybe what was possible. It's much larger. It's a much bigger and more philosophical understanding of what human life is. And it really is very poetic. Yeah, it's, it's almost very, existentialist. It is. Yeah, it's very dark. It's very grim. It's very beautiful, though. So I would read that in the Old Testament because um, it's 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 very different. It's it's kind of from a different book. And then I would say in the New Testament, the closest that that I feel it gets to steering into something that could have been a profound story is Paul's letter to it's it's uh, Paul's letter to Hebrews. And in this letter, he comes very, very close to spelling out a version of things that would, in fact, be kind of beautiful. And that is God sent his son down because he's God, right? And he doesn't really understand what it is to be human. He doesn't understand human life. He doesn't understand human pain. He doesn't understand human suffering. He can't. So he sends his son down and his son suffers and his son feels pain and his son dies. And that allows God to understand our pain and our suffering and forgive us. And he forgives everybody. And he flirts with that. And he gets really close to saying that that's what happened. But of course he doesn't, because that's not what he actually thinks, because, you know, you have to, all these assholes, ultimately you have to agree with them or you're fucked. You know, that's, yeah. that's always how it goes. Nobody there, none of them believe, none of them, none of them believe in just forgiveness for everybody because that would make their whole system kind of pointless, right? Like why, why buy in then? Why agree with them? But he comes really close and it's a kind of an amazing document, that one letter in particular. I hate Paul. I think Paul's loathsome. But this one letter is kind of interesting and it would have salvaged, it would have taken this really ugly story and made it kind of beautiful, I, th I think. I'd still, I mean, it wouldn't have gotten rid of the human sacrifice element, so you still have, like, the fingerprints of our ancestors trying to figure things out. And you would have to, you'd almost have to destroy Christian theology to make that story make sense of just, like, there's this God who's kind of alienated from us and he wants to connect with us, so he becomes human to, like, you know, connect with us. It's like, well, then that, A, that God is not omniscient, you know, because there's something he didn't know that he had to learn. And then there's yeah. uh, that story in isolation, you know, would definitely be a lot more redeemable than the Christian story. But it's like, yeah. at that point, it's not Christianity anymore. <laughs> well, you're right about that. But their story, the story, the broader story they're trying to sell, I think the only way to for them to actually pass it on is just to indoctrinate children. Like, there's no other way. You're not going to convince adults of, of what you're saying. No, I don't think that's totally true, sadly, Emerson, because I think people's lives, I've seen it happen. 
people's lives fall apart. Their lives go off the rails and they need powerful medicine. And this shit is powerful medicine, man. Mm -hmm. You have a relationship with the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe loves you when people's lives, and I'm talking, you know, serious shit, like, like drug addictions and and hardcore alcoholism and lives blowing up, right? People self-destructing people on the road to death, essentially, and looking for something to keep them afloat. And this thing will do that. So it's, it's children and, you know, who don't have the critical capacity to analyze what they're being told and adults who are at their most vulnerable or sorry, I mean, Uh, most in need. (laughs) I I would, I, I, I would basically agree with that. And then also, as you said, People who who are naturally drawn, like those of us on the skeptical side, right? I, we don't like authority. We don't find authority particularly attractive. But but there are hundreds of millions of people who are a lot more people actually than our group on the other side, and they do like it. They do like authority. They do like certainty. They like. Um, a narrative which explains everything it all makes sense. I know, I know what the meaning of life is. I know why I'm here. I know what my role is here. I know what I'm supposed to do. All of that, all those things are answered. And I think that that would appear pretty obviously to be very attractive to a lot of people. Yeah. That is the most bone chilling conclusion, but I think that, you know, there's definitely truth in it. But it, you know, just over the last couple of years, just sort of realizing, you know, I'm just speaking for myself personally, just realizing that there are people who don't actually want to be free. Like there are people who just desperately want to be told what to do and they don't want to do their thinking for themselves. And they, it's just, it's truly terrifying. Uh, those of us on our, how old are you, Emerson? I'm 23 and I I really can't relate to those people at all. You're, you're, you're a young, young guy, you know? Um, and, uh, it's, you're going to see, man, (laughs) (laughs) there's just, there's life's hard, you know, life's hard. Life's really difficult. Life's hard for everybody. And if you're of a certain mindset as you are, and anybody listening to your podcast is, you like, you you embrace the uncertainty. You embrace the sort of puzzling quality of what we're doing here, the potential meaninglessness even right. of all of this is acceptable and maybe even interesting. That is not the case for an awful lot of people. That is just not the case. And that stuff's not appealing at all. That stuff's not attractive at all. Life's hard. And, you know, if you're of that mind, it's like, I don't want to be thinking about what the, I want to know that there's a meaning to this. There, there, what I think you'll, you, I'm sure you've already experienced it, depending on what your background story is, but there's a tremendous desire for certainty. Tremendous. Because people are so scared. They're so scared. And then, so, so here we are on our side, right? And we're just shrugging like, yeah, we don't have any, (laughs) (laughs) we don't have any, all we've, all we can do is basically just go, yeah, yours are, you know, they're, they're not correct. So let's talk about the most unpleasant character in all fiction. So you, you looked at God and you tried to connect the dots between the stories that honestly could not have less to do with each other, but they all ended up in the same book. So how did you get inside God's head to try to get him from like A to B and and do the things he was supposed to do because it was in the book. I spent a lot of time just reading the stories. I spent a lot of time just going over the book and making notes and of course being drawn to the ridiculous moments because I'm a comedy writer, right? And I wanted to, everything that seemed ludicrous, I I wanted to write about because those were, those amused me and I wanted to, I wanted to deal with them. So I had my map let's say, of where I wanted to go. And then I had to start figuring out how to do that. How can one guy 
how can one journey go here, 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 and here? And I ended up thinking there's basically three ways of understanding this character. And I, and I went through all three of them, I, I would say. Um, and the first one was, well, he's, he's, he's a fraud. He's, he's the Wizard of Oz. He's a fake. He's not actually running everything. And it drives him crazy. I mean, it's, it's a gigantic version of pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. He's not actually running things and it makes him crazy. And that's why things don't go the way he wants. Cause he's not actually in control. And I thought he, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of funny. And that's kind of interesting. And there are definitely is evident. I mean, you, you could, you could make that case, but I thought, well, that's not really the, I don't find that uh, as interesting. It's a little thin. So then I moved on to, well, maybe he's a fool. Maybe in the movie, in movie terms, this is the version played by Will Ferrell. He's just an idiot. He's, <laughs> he's, he is all powerful, but he's just a, he's a nitwit and he makes one boneheaded, stupid decision after another. And is always basically stubbing his toe and getting mad and hopping around red faced and, and, and that I think is, is funny. And again, I think there's, there's evidence for it in the book. You can certainly tr make that case. And I liked it, but I ended up, uh, on the, what I felt was the most interesting and the deepest interpretation, which is he's a freak. He is all powerful. Uh, and he, he is uh, all knowing and he's, he's mentally ill. He's kind of insane, and his insanity is rooted in a very profound kind of self-hatred, and his self-hatred is rooted in a very, very deep loneliness because he has never been touched, and he never had a mother, and he never had a father, and he never had siblings, and he's never had a friend, and he never had a wife, and he's, and he's never had anything. And he had one child and he has his child deliberately as his child brutally murdered. And he doesn't have a friend, but he has an enemy and his enemy consistently gets the better of him. And, and, and this will go on eternally because he can't die. And I thought, okay, I get it. So did your background as like a movie writer connect any help you like sort of connect any of those dots? And I also follow up who's playing God in this movie in your in your head? Oh, Daniel Day-Lewis, the best <laughs> actor in the world. It's it's the most interesting role ever because he's so conflicted and he's so strange and he's so pathetic ultimately. <laughs> so absolutely take Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood and make him the creator of the universe in a way. And, right. and, and, and there you go. Uh, yeah, I think that my background as a r character writer, because movie writing is for me anyway, comedy writing, comedy movie writing is all character. It's all character. There is no funny joke in the abstract. There is no funny situation in the abstract. There is no funny visual in the abstract. In my opinion, none of those things exist. There's only one thing comedically, and that's a character. Hmm. That's all. It's a funny character and a funny character you can put anywhere and an unfunny character and, and they'll be funny and an unfunny character, you can put them anywhere and they won't be funny. So yeah, that idea of trying to create a funny character and find a funny character. And when you get close, you start to get a, a, a sense of it. Like, Oh, I think I have a live one here. Yeah. I mean, that was helpful. Sure. And just so people don't get the wrong idea. You're not like you just said, you're, you're not presenting God as like evil or as bumbling, but like you said, God is mentally ill, self-sabotaging. He's a repressed homosexual who's terribly lonely and unhappy, and, and he doesn't really even want to be happy anyway. I don't think he has any idea how to be happy, and he gets a few moments here and there, but they're very, very fleeting. And um, uh, yeah, no, I didn't write him as ultimately uh, he does foolish things and he's kind of ridiculous, but I was trying to get to the pain at the center of the character because, and I, and I did end up at, at certain moments, bizarrely feeling sympathy for, for, for this character. I actually did. Right. I thought what a hellish existence this, this guy lives. Um, and that's where I was trying to write the book from. And that's how I was trying. That's how I thought I could connect the dots. 
And how did you come to the conclusion that God is a repressed, self-loathing homosexual? <laughs> I don't know. If you read the second <laughs> book, you will see that I'm shading that a little bit differently. He's he actually he actually has sex, failed sex with Mary <laughs> in the second book. He is physically attracted to Mary. Um, to me, he's terrified of sex in general. Right. He's terrified of men. He's terrified of women. He's also a narcissist and uh, therefore m- most obsessed maybe, let's say, with his own form, the male form. Um, I-, I will say if you just read the, the Old Testament, read the Old Testament, right, and draw a conclusion about the sexuality of this character, to me, it's pretty unambiguous. This guy's obsessed with cock. This guy can't <laughs> stop talking about cock. And this guy finds uh, vagina repulsive oh, and utterly repellent and unclean and like, ooh, ooh. And he just wants to talk about balls and cocks and, per, you know, like how to shape a cock and what kind of balls he likes. And he's plus he has very uh, I don't know what the correct word is. Uh, let's say queeny taste when he starts expressing his taste in his, how he wants his temple to be. It's pretty flamboyant and 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 uh, over the top uh, Liberace stuff, in my view. Um, Liberace, is that a reference that still makes any sense? Do you know who Liberace is? I know that he's supposed to be kind of gay in a comical way. Yeah, he was kind. Of, he was he was kind of a yeah. Okay, well, Google <laughs> Google him and you'll see what I mean. But yeah, you're right. He does have a bit of an interior decorator streak in him, and it's very. He has horrible taste. Like it's all very like you know velvety and like gold kind of like it's very. I swear to God, I I'm, I hate that I'm saying this right now, but I mean there are parallels between like the president and between your God character because like oh very much so horrible interior decorating taste like the most gaudy things you can imagine and like he's never yeah. laughed you know and it's just like it's it's yeah. ex- the only times he laugh the only times he laughs is when it's at like the pain of others or something. Like, yeah. it's, it, it, you know, I hate to say it, but that must have crossed your mind before. Well, it didn't when I was writing the first book because I wrote the first, I mean, it came out in 15 and I wrote it right. in 14. So I wasn't not thinking of Donald Trump right. at all, because who was thinking of Donald Trump in 2014? Uh, certainly not me. But when I wrote the follow up book, yes, I had a very distinctive awareness because I wrote that one in 16. And, uh, yes, uh, I was aware of Trump and I did think like, wow, there is absolutely a parallel between this God character and Trump. Now at the center of things is Trump as kind of lonely and tormented and self-hating as my God character. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't look like it, but maybe. I, don't, I don't think he is. I, I think he's just, he has that superpower of just like, he can go out and he just like, he looks like shit. And like, he says that everyone around him is just like, yeah, he's, he has like a syphilitic brain or something. And he just goes yeah. out. He's like, I rock. Like he just, he yeah. has that superpower confidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, he's so alien to me. I, I just can't even get, I still can't get my head around who this guy is. Um, I don't, I don't, I can't quite grasp him yet, but that's probably part of his superpower, right? So, yeah, like, like you said, you moved on and you, and you wrote The Trouble with God, which is a sequel to the story of God. And, yeah. you know, that one included the Quran, which was yeah. <laughs> brave of you. Um, oh. But, uh, the, yeah, and like we were saying at the top, like we were talking about, you know, um, humorless, bloodthirsty lunatics. So that's an end to talk about the Quran. Um, you know, cause the Quran is just, it's, it's painfully boring and it's just a person with a small imagination trying to imagine what God would say. Uh, I'd say it's more than that. Actually. I, 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 I think I find it more interesting than most people. I mean, that's kind of a, um, you got to get into it. It's one of those things you kind of gotta, you gotta find a way into it. But once you find a way into it, I, I actually find it pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Well, he's an interesting character, Muhammad. And, and if nothing else, the portrait of Muhammad that you get the self portrait, let's say, because that's kind of what it is. Yeah. The Quran, unlike the old Testament and the new Testament, 
is written by one guy. It's it is it is one man's book, and that's what makes it. Uh, yeah, challenging in ways because you don't get different colors. Like the Old Testament, if you find one thing boring, it's like, well, jump ahead and you might you might find this other thing a lot more interesting. There's a range. It's kind of kaleidoscopic, and the Quran is just one one thing. But that's also kind of what makes it interesting because it's it is a character study, and and he's and he's really trying to cover his own footprints. He really does not want to be seen. He really, really does not want it to be about him. He wants to kind of hide, but it is all about him, and it is all about his ego, because it's always about all these. It's it's always about these guys' egos at the center of these books. That that's what these books are about. They're they're they're. They're just profoundly self-serving books. It's very, very self-dealing, but he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't want it to be. It's also, I find, tremendously funny that he just takes the Old Testament stories and, and he's like, nope, that's not how they happened. They actually happened like this. It's very, very ballsy thing to do. And his variations on the stories are, are pretty funny, I think. Um, and then the big addition, uh, and I would say Satan plays a pretty big role in the Quran. Satan's, Satan's role is maybe a bit bigger than it is in the other books. And, and I like that cause he's a very vivid character yeah. and, uh, and the addition of paradise is such a peculiar out of left field kind of addition that, that, uh, or that version of paradise specifically, you know, the version of paradise that ends up being about fucking bizarrely about <laughs> fucking, you know, of all things, the one thing God seems to hate the most, you know, that's what it ends up being about is pretty, pretty surprising. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you're saying, he's, he's constantly trying to cover his tracks and cover the fact that, you know, he's just sitting there imagining what God yeah. would say. Yeah, he, he and Joseph Smith are are certainly analogous to each other. He's a better writer. He's he's Joseph Smith is a is a clown. I mean, he's mm -hmm. a ridiculous character. Um, he's he's amazing. He's he's jaw droppingly audacious, but he's a, kind of a joke. Uh, I don't know that Muhammad's a joke. It's not so bad that it's a joke. It's written in a very cold, imperious style that can be difficult. But if you find your way in through through his character, he, it, I think it's really pretty interesting. He does tip his hand pretty often, though, like the pleasures of paradise. Sex and violence are recurring themes in his writing, which probably sum up about 80 percent of what occupied his mind. It's a very, very insecure book. It is a very, very insecure book. Mm. So much of the Quran is don't you dare, don't you dare criticize me. Do do not dare criticize me. I mean, again and again and again with these endless threats of what's going to happen to you if you criticize him. Yeah, exactly. Like we were talking at the top, like, just don't don't laugh at this. I swear to fucking yeah. God, if you laugh at this and that's like continued into the present day, just the humor. Well, well, yeah, don't you dare laugh at this. And if you laugh at this, I will destroy you. So let's talk about some of the uh, some of the stories in the Bible. Like, OK, I've been. I've been desperate to talk to you about this because I heard you talk about this at Scathing and I, okay, so the book of Job, yeah, the book of Job is amazing and something that it's one of my favorite books and something that yeah. you said that has really bothered me ever since I heard it was you said the book of Job was a conscious work of satire. Is, is yeah. that your position? Yes. Oh my God. I Please tell me there is evidence for that because that would make me so happy. <laughs> There's tons of evidence for it. I mean, all you got to do is read the thing and imagine that it's being written. All you have to do is just move your brain a little bit in that direction. And you and the evidence stacks up from the very beginning. Every character is rendered comedically, except Job himself. But God, of course, at the center of it is the most cartoonishly horrible version of himself imaginable. I mean, he's a lightweight, he's a dipshit, he's a partier, he's he's mean beyond belief, he's irrational, he's destroying his favorite guy because of a party bet, he's 
easily manipulated. But he's a bully. He's a blowhard. He's and he's got this sort of incipient mental illness, which has him just venting and saying crazy shit about his pet sea monster at the end (laughs) of the story. So he's a lunatic. Um, Satan is Bugs Bunny to me, basically, where God is Elmer Fudd. uh, (laughs) Satan is Bugs Bunny. He's just with in, in the most deft economical way possible. He is luring God into the greatest comedic pratfall of all time. Um, something that is that, that last 10 pages of Job is like, it's worthy of Jonathan Swift or Voltaire or Mark Twain. It's that level of satire. I mean, it is devastating. You look at the three friends, the three, the three quote friends, are essentially the biggest assholes in the history of the world. They're the worst friends in the history of the world. And those back and forths between um, Job and his friends are hilariously mean. They are, you just can't believe it. Like this guy's life has just been destroyed. His, his 10 children have been killed. He's, he's laying on the ground covered with open sores and his friends show up ostensibly to console him and very quickly, they're like, "You deserved it. You've got it coming. You're, you're all, you know, it's, 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 it's amazingly mean at black comedy, um, and I think it's satire from beginning to end. Well, if there are any Hebrew scholars or historians of that era and region, definitely make that a research project. The amazing thing about Job is that it's considered like a crown jewel. Right. of the Bible, that it's this beautiful exploration of why do, why do bad things happen to good people? And of course, the answer is, if you take it seriously, because God makes a party bet and loses. That's mm-hmm. why. That's why bad things happen to good people. I think what happened is, you know, Solomon is is the great genius at the center of this thing. Solomon is their, their Plato and Aristotle combined. I mean, he's really, really a big thinker and a great thinker and a beautiful thinker. And he gets all kinds of shit into the Bible that you can't fucking believe is in there. You cannot believe that the Song of Solomon is in the Bible. It's a fucking <laughs> sex poem. It doesn't belong in the Bible. It's erotic. Solomon, Solomon gets sex into the Bible. Solomon gets doubt into the Bible because Ecclesiastes is like, we don't know. Trying to understand is like chasing the wind. Just eat, drink, and be merry. You'll die. You'll never know. Who right. knows? You're you're not worth any more than an animal. All this kind of thing. I mean, he gets the he gets doubt into this book in a way that nobody else does. And I think in the book of Job, he's he is writing a comedic version for a specific purpose. Satire is always written for a purpose. The purpose is. I want us to move beyond this conception of God. I think there's a bigger and deeper understanding of God. In order to do that, I want to write a version of the story where I show you what it would look like on, on, in very human terms if, if this God character is as we've imagined him up to this point. Okay, right. here it is. That's why I think it's satire. So you also wrote something that was a bit of an addendum called The Story of Satan, which is yeah. in the paperback of Story of God, and you can also buy it separately. Um, yeah. He is the, I mean, he's very interesting, but he's also the biggest clue that something is seriously, like, I feel like he's arguably the biggest, you might disagree, but the, the biggest textual basis, textual basis that um, God might be mentally ill. Because, <laughs> like, what is he doing there? Why does God let him to, like, continue to exist? I would agree with you completely. I, I think that's well put. Yeah. Why is he there? Who, what kind of being for his, ver- who, who has a, a gigantic and perfect plan for a universe, a, a world, for, right at the very beginning, at the very, very start, creates his own worst enemy who's going to undo him again and again and again. Who does that? What kind of self-hatred are we talking about? And it doesn't matter how you get to it. It's like, oh, well, you know, you buy into the whole backstory that John Milton kind of creates. And it's like, well, no, the angels were, or this is actually in the Quran, you know, the angels were created and some of them rebelled and Satan's the leader of the rebellion and they're blah, 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 whatever. 
God's all powerful. He created it that way. Why did you create right at the very, very, very beginning of the story? What kind of lunatic creates their own nemesis who's going to destroy their vision? What it's like, it's like a movie director has a huge, beautiful movie in mind. Perfect. The most amazing. And they bring somebody in who's going to undermine them every single day on the set. Every single day is going to like wreck takes, you know, walk through takes, knock over a light, (laughs) you know, fuck stuff up, talk to people behind the scenes and get them to do that. Like what on earth is that the nature of that plan? Exactly. It's like, that's what's so powerful though, about putting God in sort of human terms and just saying like, Seriously, though, what would he have to be like for this to happen? Because I think that rebellion story actually is in the Bible, but it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter what's in because either God is omniscient and omnipotent and he saw this coming and could could have stopped it or could stop it now, you know, or he's not those things, you know, or he is those things and he's a fucking lunatic because he just lets it keep on going, even though he is supposed to be benevolent because he wanted because he wanted it there was a, a sense of discovery for me in writing the book. Cause I'm trying to figure it out as I go along. And that means that every, every now and then I hit a moment. I'm like, Oh, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I see. And I, and there's the moment where, uh, Adam, he's made Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve are in, in the garden of Eden and they're going to live there forever in perfect harmony, tending to the garden. And, and I thought to myself, well, of course he'd send Satan in to destroy that because why would God like that? What's there to do? He's got nothing to do if that's how it is. Like just watch my two little creatures putter around in perfect harmony. What, what could be more boring? What would the, it's just, there's nothing for him to do, but if they go wrong, uh, well, I get to punish them and then I get to forgive them. And then there get to be, you know, dozens more, hundreds more, millions more, billions more. And I get to do the same thing with all of them. I get to punish and forgive. And I like punishing more, obviously. It's way more fun. But, you know, yeah, I'll forgive sometimes, too, and make them grovel. It's so active. There's so much to do. Of course he'd like that better. And just think about what what kind of a lunatic you'd have to be to create people like Adam and Eve in the first place, or people like you and me, where it's just like... Yeah, you know, they have about one one billionth of my intelligence and power, and I'd really like to create them and then, you know, constantly punish them and get mad at them, despite the fact that they're essentially infants, you know, compared to me. And I'm going to create create them that way, and I'm going to get mad at them. I I might even set them on fire for, you know, all of eternity. But uh, yeah, I mean, you you have to be a bit deranged to even have that thought. Like, that wouldn't even occur to me. It is very deranged, and the level of cruelty... And sadism is spectacularly high. And so moving on to like the book of Revelation, I mean, you wrote Rapture Palooza, you wrote a book about, or I mean, sorry, a movie about the rapture and about the end of the world. And just as a general movie question, why do we love the apocalypse so much? And why is there always a movie in the theater about the end of the world and like, you know, cities collapsing and like, you know, just civilization coming down? Why is that such an object of fascination for us? Well, why do you think? I, I don't know. I see it every time I go in the preview and I'm just like, oh, look, it's the world ending again. And I just you don't, don't have any you don't, you don't have any idea, any opinion. I think that it could only come. Honestly, maybe it's a lack of imagination on my part, but may, it could only come, in my opinion, from a deep misanthropy and just hatred for society and just a desire to make it all come down. <laughs> and for some of these people, I think they just want to live in a place where there's no rules. Like, I think a lot of them want to... Um, you know, live in a post-apocalyptic world because then they can get out their guns and shoot at people. And, you know, that's kind of me oversimplifying some some people who I don't <laughs> like. But I'm just saying for me, I don't see where else it would come from other than like just a desire to watch it all come tumbling down because you don't actually like it that much. I think that's that is certainly a, a, a significant part of it. Humans seem to be just fascinated with that which scares them. We just are, cannot take our eyes off things which frighten us. And apocalyptic visions have been popular for a long time. I mean, you look at those those religious paintings yeah. of of I mean, look at Bosch or something like the that that I that concept of of the appeal of the apocalypse. But 
probably on some level, it's like, yeah, that's the moment where the people I hate are going to get punished and, and I'll get my reward or something. Hmm. All right. Well, you heard it here. Uh, people want the world to end and they all want, and they're all uh, desperately obedient. You have a pretty <laughs> dark view of human nature. <laughs> No, not really. <laughs> no, not at all. No, I actually don't. I mean, it sounds like that, but I don't. And I'll tell you why, because I'm a comedy writer and, and I like play and I like laughter and I like silliness. And I think that that's absolutely an opening for us. I think it's a huge, huge avenue that's open to all human beings. We play where the animal, I mean, we, I mean, all mammals play, birds play, a lot of animals play, but humans play on a level that is different than any other creature and, and really inspired versions of play and play is the opening. And I think this is the uh, ceremonial part of the podcast when I bring up the Bill and Ted movies and speculate about a third one. But I think this yeah. is actually, I mean, there's concrete news on that front for the first yeah. time in a while. Yeah. So is yeah. that, that going to come out like on the, the 30th anniversary of when the first one came out? or is that Oh, no, because that, that would require it to come out, you know, February of next year. And we haven't even started production. We're on the verge of closing the deal with the financiers. Ed Solomon and I are going to do some script changes. Uh, hopefully at that point we'll get into active pre-production. We could be filming it on the 30th anniversary hmm. of the, when the first one came out, but no, it probably, I mean, at the earliest, I would say it would come out maybe fall of 19. Um, I would say fall of 19 or maybe it could be the 31st anniversary, which is not very, uh, <laughs> not very elegant, but, uh, it could be 20 or February 20. But, but it is a definite thing though. It is definitely going to come out. Oh, you know, it's movies Amber. It's movies <laughs> and they are, it, it is the ultimate version of stars have to be in alignment. Everything has to kind of be in alignment and, um, it's looking good. I, I wouldn't say it's a certainty. I would say it's a likelihood. Mm. Uh, maybe it's even a, I would say it's a likelihood, but, uh, no, I, I can't say, no, it's not certain until it's filmed mm. until it's done until it's in the, in the can, so to speak. And then it's, yeah, then, yeah. But you just never know. Well, you mentioned Hitchens, and uh, what's your what's your view on Hitchens? Oh, I like him. He's funny. Like, if I look at sort of what I was trying to do, I was trying to do this thing in a comedic way. And, of course, the history of people who've done that is uh, – it's not super lengthy. It's uh, – I don't know, Voltaire, Mark Twain um, – Hitchens, Hitchens was funny. I mean, he's a really, really witty, clever guy. I got a kick out of him. I mean, is he a, a deep, serious thinker? I, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure I recognize deep, serious thinkers when I see him anyway. I thought he was really fun and, and, and very, um, aggressive in his willingness to just get in anybody's face and argue with them very directly, but very coolly too, with that kind of elegant, you know, alcoholic Englishman kind of vibe of his. Um, he was great. Yeah, he was great. He, I thought his strength was kind of identifying the narrative, which is why I brought him up actually, because, you know, he was good at like looking at this, what are the story that these people are trying to sell? Because, you know, human beings aren't these logic machines, you know, they, they believe in stories. And if you point out absurdities in their story, then that's often more effective than picking apart, you know, syllogisms from William Lane Craig, which I obviously think is important or else I wouldn't be doing this podcast. But I, you know, if it's obvious, we need to get it right that we're right, you know, that this is true. And we can, you know, argue philosophically and scientifically that our views are correct. But I feel strongly that, you know, identifying the narrative or story for ourselves and for and the narrative and story of our opponents is just a crucial part of all this. And I thought that Hitchens was excellent at like, what is the story you're trying to sell me right now? You, you expect me to believe that, you know, for 300,000 years that, you know, God just watched all this and then 2000 ago was just like, you know, this can't go on. Like he was good at yeah. that sort of thing. And I think that's, yeah, yeah. and that's no, also why your book is important too, I think, because it, it takes the story that they're trying to sell us and just be like, you know, this actually is, you know, cause you use references all throughout your book and you're just like, this is your book 
this is the story that you're trying to sell us. And like that is yeah. often far more powerful than trying to debate an idiot like William Lane Craig. Uh, yeah, I was trying to hoist them on their own petard, yeah. you know, right. by by quoting their own book. And yes, William Lane Craig <laughs> is really an annoying idiot, isn't he? <laughs> well, he's not an idiot. He's not an idiot. That's not true. He's just uh, a very, very small minded man, I would say. He's very like smarmy and like he thinks he's yeah. just a genius. And it just it's yeah. maddening because like he's still coming to these ridiculous conclusions and you can find him you know, admitting to just bizarre things. Like one of my favorite clips of him is, is he's just like, well, you know, ultimately, even if I was proven wrong about all this, it wouldn't matter because you can feel the truth of Jesus in your heart. Yeah. And like him yeah. saying like in your heart is like one of my favorite, like it, yeah. it gets me every single time. Like <laughs> but the way in which I know Christianity is true is first and foremost on the basis of the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And that this gives me a self-authenticating means of knowing that Christianity is true wholly apart from the evidence. Well, that just trumps everything else, doesn't it? You know, he, you just know in your heart. Yeah, he's 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 uh, he's a fatuous man. That other guy, that David Bentley Hart guy is a little more substantial. He's a little more serious, a little more of a genuine intellectual, I would say. I haven't heard um, him. Oh, he's more he's more worth. He, I mean, if you want to kind of like, you know, know what the enemy is thinking, so to speak. He's more, he's worth taking a look at. All right. Well, it's, it's seriously been excellent talking to you and, uh, you know, you're welcome back anytime. Um, I think you're doing important work with these books. You know, it, it might seem like you're just making jokes about God, but I think that that's actually extremely important and I wish you the best in all your endeavors. I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work and I would encourage anyone listening to, uh, go out and buy it. Thanks Emerson. It was fun talking to you. That's all I have for you today. You can find the links to buy Chris's book in the description, and you can get an extended version of our conversation on the patron RSS feed. And I have a new patron to thank, Borderline Rhetorical. Thank you, Borderline Rhetorical. And I have to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Peach Machine, Jesta, and Phil Stillwell. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter, where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you can feel the truth of atheism in your heart, you can like us on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.